If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this October 1st, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down, as is always the case, a ton to get to, including a uh, special guest in hour number two, former Fox News Channel host John Gibson will join us to talk about a whole host of interesting things, including the release of O.J. Simpson from prison, which happened very early this morning on this uh, Sunday, October 1st. Speaking of scary things, and it now being October, this is officially now Halloween season, I guess. Although in the Ziegler household, with my five-year-old daughter, Grace, you remember her. It's costing money. Yeah, uh, she uh, is obsessed with Halloween. She's obsessed with all holidays where she thinks she's going to get something. But she's particularly obsessed with Halloween So much so that she and I have been going to the local Halloween store, oh gosh, since about, I would say, at least the middle of September, if not the beginning of September, (laughs) which I find to be rather hilarious when you think that, okay, the middle of September is way further away from Halloween than Thanksgiving is from Christmas, Right. So Christmas, you know, still, I guess, is a much bigger deal than Halloween. And when I was a kid, we never even thought about Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Right. That was the whole point of Black Friday. Well, now even Halloween is such a big deal that the run up is almost two months long, at least for some people, at least for my daughter. It has been. I, I, I think officially October now is when it's okay to start talking about Halloween. We have, we have our Halloween decorations up at our house for uh, a couple weeks already. So we're, we're in f- mid-season form. And today we went to the Halloween store to actually purchase this year's Halloween costumes. And uh, for those of you who have been fans of the old nationally syndicated Sunday night show... You know that uh, this has been uh, quite an interesting tale, the Halloween thing, for the last few years. Because as, you know, hardly a surprise, 
my blonde-haired, blue-eyed, beautiful daughter is super into princesses, Disney princesses, which was my worst nightmare uh, because I grew up decrying Disney and princesses and the impact on women and what have you. But now I'm living, that's my life now. It's Disney princesses. Anyway, uh, three years ago, she was Cinderella, and I was her Prince Charming, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, she's three years old. This will happen one time, and we'll have the pictures of it, and that's it. And then last year, she was Sleeping Beauty and asked me again to be Prince Charming. So I I already had the costume, so that's cool. So, you know, we saved the money on that, and I got to do the Prince Charming thing again. But I could tell it wasn't – it didn't have quite the same Shazam last year for her as it did the previous year when I was was Prince Charming. So I knew my days as Prince Charming – were over. Uh, but what's really interesting is that after last year's Halloween, not really before, after, she became completely obsessed with the Tim Burton movie, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and specifically Jack the Pumpkin King. And when I say obsessed, I'm talking obsessed. Uh, watching the movie on a constant basis, we had to try to cut her off from it. She has almost the whole movie memorized. And it's kind of a weird movie for a five-year-old girl to be super into. Uh, you know, it's it's somewhat Christmassy, somewhat Halloween-y. And, you know, I think that was the whole purpose of the film was to try to bridge the gap between those two two holidays. And it has a, you know, it's a permanent fixture within the culture because of that. And... You know, throughout Christmas, even after Christmas, she was still really into this. And so we, my wife and I thought, okay, well, obviously next Halloween is going to be all about, you know, Jack the Pumpkin King, and she'll probably be Sally, Jack's girlfriend. And then it's, you know, during the summertime, it finally started to dissipate. And she was going to be a mermaid for Halloween, and we're like, okay, that's, you know, I guess that's normal, these, these obsessions come and go with with a girl that age, and that's just the way it, it happens. Well, now that we've gotten closer, she's gone back to the whole Jack and Sally situation. And and now, officially, uh, I am going to be Jack the Pumpkin King for Halloween, and she's going to be uh, Sally. So I guess in a weird way, I'm doing Prince Charming, only a very, very different version of Prince Charming for the third consecutive year, which I'm sure is going to be my last year uh, being the, uh, you know, in this kind of role with my daughter uh, for Halloween, which, you know, is fine, especially since I have a younger daughter, Diana, who I'm sure, sure will probably be going through the exact same process in an, uh, a couple of short years. So that'll be interesting and exciting. Uh, Grace is so into the whole Nightmare Before Christmas thing that she has actually come up with the idea of a sequel. She wants to make a sequel to the movie, The Nightmare Before Christmas. And this isn't just like some idle idea that a five-year-old had one time and, and never thought of again. She's even created a, a letter-slash-piece of artwork to send Tim Burton to ask him for permission to be able to do a sequel to The Nightmare Before Christmas, and we didn't know what to do with this. My instinct was to send it to him, knowing that there was very little chance of getting any sort of response, other than maybe from his lawyers. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, cease and desist. You don't have the right to do a sequel to Jack the Pumpkin King. Uh, but Grace talks about this a lot, where she she wants to make a movie with with the next chapter of of uh, Jack and Sally. I think she wants them to get married in uh, the sequel to uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. My father, the last time he visited, did something really stupid, which somehow we got away with, where he tricked her. I was so pissed at him. He, for some reason, got this idea, which he didn't pass by either me or my wife, that he would, call, he would trick Grace by using his cell phone into thinking that Tim Burton had called her. So now Grace thinks that Tim Burton has actually called her and is hip to the idea of the sequel to the movie. So that's another whole thing we got to deal with. But anyway, the, the news out of all this is that it, now on October 1st, officially, it's going to be uh, Jack and Sally, uh, John and Grace uh, for Halloween. My wife is not happy about it, though, because she thinks that uh, I have usurped her uh, dominion over Halloween because Halloween was always her holiday and she feels left out so even in the, the very few pleasures i have in life and there aren't many i still have to deal with the the negative blowback of the wife all right uh, now to the news of the week uh we're still talking about uh, donald trump and the nfl uh, that exploded uh, largely after last week's podcast although i had written about it for mediate uh, on uh, Sunday morning of last week. I've written another article about it for media, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com uh, today. And th the basics of, of where I am on this is, this is a war where everybody's losing. There's no winner here, other than maybe the news media. The news media might be winning. Everybody else is losing. Trump is losing. Trump is losing. Uh, it's clear from the polls that there, he's lost a couple of points, which his approval rating actually had been recovering up until this situation. Two polls are out where he's at 37 percent approval. Uh, one of those polls from CNN indicates by almost a two to one margin. People do not think he should have gotten involved in the whole NFL protest situation. But the NFL is also getting harmed. Now, it's hard to tell for sure how much. The ratings picture was mixed. There was, you know, if you want to cherry pick statistics, which the Trump supporters love to do. Oh, my God. Boy, the, the, I, I will have to say Trump supporters are, are amazing at cherry picking. But if you want to cherry pick some stats that indicate that Trump's war on the NFL has hurt their ratings, you can do that. You can also find uh, indications that, for instance, the Monday Night Football game this week actually was a ratings win better than it was last year during week three. So I'm not 100% sold on the ratings issue, especially since there are a lot of reasons why NFL ratings are going down. I personally believe it's mainly because of the nature of television and younger people not watching television, especially three-and-a-half-hour football games, and especially in an environment where the, the National Football League now has to pay the price for having sold out the fantasy football. I really believe that that's at the heart of a lot of this. Uh, and I've had people who, who have shared their own stories with me on Twitter and Facebook that are consistent with my theory here, which is that in order to, kind of like a steroid injection, increase interest in the National Football League several years ago, the National Football League bought in totally into this whole fantasy football stuff. Well, what does fantasy football do? Fantasy football has the viewer focused 
on the individual. In most cases, you got your defense right, but other, in most cases, you're you're focused on the individual, not on the team and not on the city. Eventually, that has an impact. Eventually, that means that that person and their interest in the game is no longer dictated by loyalty to a team or a city. And in an era where players are moving around on a yearly basis, the connection that one has to a particular team or a particular city has eroded. And let's face it, in an era where wives dominate the marriage and uh, four hours is a long period of time to give to anything and where kids dominate the family, it is becoming more and more difficult for a guy to devote four hours plus to watching a football game on television, especially when it's a long year. Now, you can still get away with it in the playoffs, but, you know, 16-game season, that's a long time in this day and age. So there are a lot of reasons. I, I don't know what the answer is. I think we'll get more data on this, but... Certainly Colin Kaepernick has been harmed by this, ironically enough. I don't think there's any chance he gets another shot at the uh, National Football League anytime soon because this whole thing has been blown up. Trump himself is, I, I think, absurdly trying to now save face and move the goalposts by taking credit for teams when they actually do stand for the national anthem as if by the way this was the biggest problem facing america or that or that somehow they weren't doing that before he got himself involved in this and you know it's the 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 dust is not settled on this yet but in the end what's going to happen is we're going to go back to what it was before trump injected himself in this which was Almost nobody was protesting. (laughs) So if we go back to that, Trump's going to declare victory, which is kind of like an arsonist (laughs) setting Alice on fire. And then after the fire gets put out, (laughs) saying, see, it's my my heroic efforts that have saved the house. No, you're the one that started the fire. The fire was going out before you poured gasoline on it. And that's, that's the way Trump is. You know, and I, I maintain, and I said this in the article, and I said this in a TV appearance, and I'm amazed how few media outlets have emphasized this. I really believe a lot of Trump's motivation here, as it always is, is selfish. Shockingly, it's about Trump. And the selfish angle here is he's a former USFL owner. The USFL, the United States Football League, New Jersey Generals, effectively got shut down by the National Football League. It was a humiliation for Donald Trump. He has never had the money nor the class to ever be considered for entry into that exclusive club of NFL owners. And this is what bothers Donald Trump more than anything. I believe this is what motivated his entire presidential run which was his feeling of being disrespected by the elites. And there's no better or worse example of that than what happened with the National Football League and the USFL. And this is his way of almost in a kamikaze attack 
using the demographics of his cult to do damage to an entity that he feels slighted him. That's the way Trump works. And I've heard very few people really make a big issue out of this. Apparently Glenn Beck did, which I thought was interesting since Glenn's not even a a sports guy. But at least Glenn can see through, apparently, Trump's motivations. This is what makes Trump tick. And I said this on Headline News in an appearance which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Kevin Campbell, our producer, did a great job of putting together that video, which is embedded at freespeechbroadcasting.com. There's also an article at freespeechbroadcasting.com about my appearance on Headline News with Carol Costello about this. And I make these very points. I, I think everybody's a loser in this. I think Trump's a fraud. I think Colin Kaepernick's a fraud. These protests make no sense to me. And, and this is an important point as far as the protests not making any sense. This is allegedly about police abusing black men, right? That's allegedly what the, the basis of the protests are. So what does that have to do with the national anthem or the American flag? That has nothing with it. If we had a United States police force, I could, say, I could see, okay, that, that makes some semblance of sense. You're, you're using this opportunity because there's a connection to that, uh, and you're using that to protest. I, I, okay, fine. Uh, by the way, if, if the national anthem itself, let's, let's pretend the national anthem in the, in the lyrics of the song, the Star Spangled Banner, had anything to do <laughs> with police work. Uh, okay, I could even see that. But it doesn't. And, and, and just so you know that I'm, I'm not just throwing that out there. I haven't thought about this. You know, in, in 2015, the then St. Louis Rams had a situation because of what was occurring in Ferguson where several of the Rams came out before the game during introductions and they did the whole hands up, don't shoot business. And I was furious. One, because it's totally inappropriate. And two, more importantly, it's not based in truth. We now know for sure that hands up, don't truth, hands up, don't truth. That's a helpful with that for a Freudian slip. Hands up, don't shoot, although it also was hands up, no truth. Hands up, don't shoot was a fraud. It didn't happen. It was debunked. But even though I vehemently disagreed with what those St. Louis Rams did, at least that made some damn sense because it's in St. Louis where this occurred and they're directly relating their protest to a specific circumstance that they believe, I believe incorrectly, was unjust. So that at least makes some sense. What the some of the players, a minority of the players are doing, and, and led by Kaepernick, makes no sense to me. None. So check out that TV appearance. You know, one of the things that struck me in the TV appearance, well, a couple things. <laughs> one is that it's weird that uh, basically we're now on a, in a situation in, in my uh, life and career where circumstances conspire about once a year where they let me on television. <laughs> and, the, and the circumstances have to be pretty special, I guess, at this point. Because, well, one, I'm not a celebrity. Two, I'm not a hot chick. And, and three, I'm just far too dangerous. I mean, and you could tell immediately that Carol Costello was like, whoa, 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 who booked this guy? He's out of control. Uh, and I doubt they'll ever have me back on again, even though, you know, I think I, what I said was compelling and, and uh, credible and done in a, in a provocative and entertaining fashion. You can check it out yourself. But 
I'm, I just don't care enough. I mean, I've always said that most, the biggest problem with most TV guests is that their goal is to be invited back, right? And when you want to be invited back, when you have this need to be on TV, which I got over at like 24, 25, when I was a TV sportscaster in, in uh, Ohio and West Virginia, um, you know, you should grow out of this, folks. Unfortunately, uh, people that are on TV never grow out of this. It's mostly out of insecurity. But I digress. Uh, the, the reality is that most people, their goal is to get asked back. And that has, to me, created a massive conflict of interest and has prevented the truth from being told, especially you know, in, when it comes to political correctness or, or conservatism, oftentimes the truth never gets told on television because it prevents somebody from potentially being asked back. Not always, but a lot of times. My goal, it's not my primary goal, but it's an ancillary goal because I, it's kind of an indication that I must have done something right, is to not get asked back, which I've been exceedingly good at. It's probably my greatest talent when it comes to anything in the media is on television. Uh, Ziegler rarely ever gets asked back because it's just it's just too much. It's you know, it's just too much to handle. Uh, These go to 11. Yeah, it's just it's just too much. It's, it's off of their scale and it's not safe. That's the main thing. They want safety. That's all they want. They just want the machine to keep going. Everyone wants to keep their gig. And frankly, I have no idea how a network like Headline News even exists. I really don't. I mean, think about this. So this is, you know, it's a major news network. It's on almost every cable system in in the country. And um, they asked me a couple days in advance whether I'd come on to do the show this past Monday. And, and I said, okay, fine. But I, I asked, I, I really had one requirement. And that was that there not be more than one other guest, including me. Because I've been on these shows before where there's like six guests. <laughs> and you're, you're in a, a six-minute uh, segment. And, and it's just ridiculous. It's just, you know. It's just flat out ridiculous. There's, there's, just no, there's no point to it. And they agreed to that. Um, but what was interesting is that it used to be standard, and this was standard for everybody in any, in any, any television outlet worth their salt, that you get a car ride to and from the studio. That's just normal, right? Especially in Los Angeles, in a big city where it's a pain in the ass, and I, I live north of L.A., and so it is a pain in the neck, or actually, literally for me, it's a pain in the leg because I've got sciatic nerve pain, but that's another story for another day that you don't really care about. But the point is, it's a literal pain to drive a long distance, especially in traffic, especially when you don't know how much traffic for sure you're going to get. Well, this network no longer provides a ride for these for normal guests. Not my guess is that for celebrities, they'll make an exception. And I'm clearly not in that category. But by and large, now they don't do that. So you have to drive yourself in to the studio for, you know, a six, seven minute segment with the host and one other guest. And I'm telling you, 
this was you know a major story. Obviously, the NFL Trump story. It was the Monday after uh, the Sunday. It was a good time slot, right in the middle of the you know the the well, lunch hour in the in the East Coast, m- m- breakfast in the West Coast, and there was no indication to me that anybody had watched this thing. None. I got, I think, one Facebook message. I don't think I got any uh, messages via Twitter. Nobody that I'm aware of followed me on Twitter uh, because of seeing me. Uh, I mean, and, and I don't really care about that point, but the, the, the reason why it's significant is it's an indication that nobody's actually watching. I got no emails. There was no sign at all. The only reason, in fact, I'm sure that way more people saw the appearance in the article that Mediate did about the appearance than actually saw it live when it happened. And I'm sure of that. I, I, and so my my question is, how do these networks even exist? And if you think it's bad on television, it's even worse on some of these national radio shows. I mean, nobody is well, nobody's listening. And the business model is completely broken, which, of course, only furthers this problem of chasing after ratings. Because it's broken, the standards get lower and lower and lower, which probably drives the audience further and further away. It's a never-ending cycle. Anyway, uh, check that out at Free Speech Broadcasting. Uh, dot com if you're interested because you know you never know with me it, it might be the last tv appearance i ever make in my life uh based upon the nature of the medium and the nature of my career a, a lot of attention this weekend has been put on president trump's response to the disaster in puerto rico thanks to the hurricane there and i have to say um I, i'm a bit conflicted about this one for a couple reasons one i i think that george bush got a really raw deal in katrina that's number one. Number two, I don't feel like I have a good sense. I don't know that anybody has a good sense yet. Uh, just what it is that Trump or the federal government is being accused of doing wrong or not doing. On the other hand, though, the way Trump's reacting to the criticism is embarrassing. It is beyond unpresidential. Frankly, it's barely human. It's barely human. I mean, forget about the standards of a president. It's barely human the way that Trump has reacted to this. And I know that people think I hate Donald Trump and therefore knee-jerk. I'm always going to think he's wrong. If, if it hadn't been for his overreaction and inappropriate comments about, for instance, the mayor of, of San Juan... San Juan, yeah, I guess uh, the, the mayor that's been the female mayor that's been getting all the publicity and is in the battle now with Trump that he's been attacking. If it, if it hadn't been for that, I would be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, because frankly, I don't think that the president of the United States has all that much to do with hurricane relief. I really don't, and I think that circumstances way beyond a president's control dictate this. Now. I will acknowledge that there are several elements that diminish his uh, his claim to any benefit of the doubt. 
One is the reaction on Twitter. It wasn't just one tweet. It's been numerous tweets that were totally inappropriate. And two, <laughs> I have to acknowledge that his statement about Puerto Rico, that it's an island in the water, in a lot of water, in the ocean, <laughs> which went super viral, doesn't lend to a lot of credibility. <laughs> when I mean, he's basically like, the uh, the third grader or the fourth grader who didn't do their book report and is being asked to tell the teacher everything he knows about Puerto Rico. <laughs> and, you know, it's an island and an ocean, a big ocean, lots of water. <laughs> that doesn't really instill a lot of confidence. Uh, and I tend to agree that I think there's a chance that at least at the beginning of this, he didn't fully understand what Puerto Rico is. I believe that. As insane as that sounds, I think there's a really reasonable chance he didn't realize that Puerto Rico is a United States territory with American citizens. I think that's a reasonable assessment. I'm not saying I know that for sure, but think about how, ins- how nuts that is. Think about how nuts that is that we can even consider that as a legitimate possibility. And so I don't know where the Puerto Rico thing is going. I, I, you know, it certainly appears as if Trump is in the dust thou protest too much category. But I, I'm not willing to say for sure at this point, based upon the current factual record, that Trump has done anything from a, abs- from a uh, logistical standpoint, from an actual technical perspective, that on the ground that actually matters, that he's done anything wrong that I know of, know of as of yet. I'm certainly willing to change my mind on that, but, but I'm not going to criticize him unless I know what the hell he did wrong, which is the same thing that happened with Katrina. No one ever told me, okay, what did George Bush do wrong other than tell Mike Brown you're doing a heck of a job, Brownie? That, that, and he wasn't the only one saying that at that time. But uh, no one, If you're going to criticize someone, tell me what the hell they did wrong or should have done differently. I haven't heard that yet. Now, on the other hand, Trump did do something this week, which to me, it's amazing it got very little play. And to me, was <laughs> inexcusable. And if Barack Obama had done anything like this, or Hillary Clinton had ever done anything like this, Fox News Channel would be setting itself on fire 24-7. I'm referring to the fact that Donald Trump reported that Iran in a missile test this week. And it's amazing this didn't get much publicity. And he did so, you know, rather dramatically and as an indication, you know, that we need to get out of the Iran deal, which he promised we would get out of, which hasn't happened, but that's another story. Slightly off, off of this one. Well, it turns out that that didn't happen. And what had occurred, and this is according to Fox News, so it's not fake news, as Trump would have you believe. Of course, everything's fake news now that he doesn't like, which should tell you something about the credibility of the fake news claim. But I digress. Fox News reported that Trump had been duped by an old video of a missile test by Iran. Now, 
This is the president of the United States making public statements about situations that could easily, easily be misconstrued or create a domino effect that could cause military conflicts. And he's not even making the statement based upon anything more than a video he saw that was old, that he got duped by. Not on an intelligence assessment. He's not even, he doesn't even have the self-control to wait or to even make a freaking phone call. I mean, you're president of the United States. Make a phone call. Hey, did this happen? I'm pretty sure someone's going to get back to you. But no. And yet, I, I would venture to guess 99% of the public has no idea that this even happened. And it all goes back to what I've been saying constantly about one of the many side effects of the Trump presidency, which is desensitization. That things that would normally freak us out <laughs> with Trump, it's like, oh, yeah, he got duped by a video and said that Iran had conducted a missile test, but that didn't really happen. Okay. So now with Obamacare dead, we think, it appears, just as I've been telling you, I've been telling you all year, it was not going to happen. There was no way to make it work. The math just couldn't work. It was like trying to make a Rubik's Cube work that didn't have all the pieces. It was logistically impossible, technically impossible, especially with a poor leader like Donald Trump. That, that's now gone. Now the attention appears to be going towards tax reform. Now, this really is going to be the, the last great test for this Congress and for this president, because this is their last chance to do, of, do anything of significance before the midterm elections, which will be coming around before you know it, because soon we're going to get into the holidays and then we're into a new year and then it's over. You can't do anything in, in, really in an election year that's controversial. So whatever happens with tax reform, it's the last chance for this Trump presidency to mean anything significant and long-lasting other than Neil Gorsuch replacing Antonin Scalia. That's it. Now, I'm someone who obviously believes in tax reform. I'm definitely a believer in low taxes. And, you know, it's hard to tell for sure what the plan is at this point. But there's a reasonably good chance that some of the, the provisions may end up helping me. But that's not, that's really not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in whether or not we can finally do something with a lasting impact that's at least remotely conservative in its origins. And unfortunately, I think one of the problems we're going to have here in getting tax reform done is that Trump is a remarkably poor leader on this issue. He almost couldn't be a worse leader. One, because he doesn't have the skills and he only cares about himself. But two, here's a guy who is, just ask him yourself, claims to be super rich and who will personally benefit from numerous pensions, especially, by the way, the end of the estate taxes. Children should love that if that ever occurs, assuming he's 
even remotely as wealthy as he claims. But there are all sorts of provisions in the, the, proposed, the proposal that has been reported that will benefit him, which will, of course, destroy any credibility he might have in selling this thing. But then on top of that, it's, what's even worse is we can't know for sure because this is a guy who refuses to release his own taxes. And this is why, I mean, I, I've always been baffled. Of, of all the things that have baffled me by, about Trump cultists, the idea that Trump's taxes don't matter has always been the biggest stumper to me. Yes, they matter. They matter, one, because he promised it. Two, because you'd like to know whether or not your president is actually paying taxes. Three, the fact that you're that he's not releasing the information destroys any credibility he has on two fronts. Asking Americans to pay their fair share, because we don't know that he is. And two, the issue of implementing tax reform. Because how can you tell the American people with any credibility that, hey, this plan is good when you can't even know for sure how you and your friends are going to be impacted by it or you and your family members are going to be impacted by it. You have no credibility on this tax issue. I mean, my God, you know, Mitt Romney would have been destroyed on this and all his taxes are public, but because he's a rich guy, he'd be he would have been pilloried if he had been elected and tried to institute major tax reform because he's rich. And this is obviously inherently, whenever you cut taxes, you're gonna always help rich people more. Why? Because rich people pay more taxes. I mean, that's just the nature of it. It's just basic math. So I'm skeptical that tax reform is actually going to get done. And to me, that ought to be the final nail in the coffin of this idea that the Trump presidency was worth all the costs to conservatism. But I'm willing to be open-minded and I'm willing to be hopeful. I want this to go through because I think it'll be good for the country. Not to mention, depending on how it's done, it might actually be a lot more fair. But Let's make no mistake. If a Republican president with a Republican House and a Republican Senate can't get major tax reform done in an off-year election, I mean, in a a year that there's no election, then there's no point to any of this. Nothing matters. It's complete abject failure. And they will be punished, rightfully so, in 2018, if, in fact, that's the result. I mean, this ought to be easy. Tax reform is the one thing just about every Republican has in their DNA. Everyone shares that strand of DNA. I mean, you might differ on the details, but by and large, that's the reality. Is this something everyone agrees on? And yet my gut tells me, gun to my head, they won't be able to get it done. Largely because of Donald Trump. All right, um... Moving on to other news, there's a news story that I think this is kind of one of those situations where uh, the fact that I didn't get to it last week kind of proves the point. 
that I wanted to get to last week, and I, I forget why I didn't. I don't know if I forgot or ran out of time or what have you. But I'm always frustrated by the fact that it is so incredibly difficult to battle a set narrative that the news media likes. That once the news media likes a narrative, it's like they put their hands over their ears and their eyes and facts no longer matter. You cannot change our mind. We have our story and we're sticking with it. I've mentioned this many times with regard to the whole Penn State uh, Paterno-Sandusky story, but I'm not referencing that here, although, frankly, there are a lot of comparisons between the Penn State story and the issue of global warming slash climate change. And last week, there was a story that should have been a bombshell because it came from left-wing news outlets, and it was about the very people who have been saying that we're doomed because of climate change. These are not some sort of right-wingers. This is not part of the 3% of scientists who say climate change. You know, that number that keeps getting used, I believe, dramatically incorrectly. This is, this is the, the mainstream. And here was the story, which I'm sure you missed, or probably missed, because it got almost no play other than on some right-wing... Sources like the Drudge Report and, I guess, Talk Radio and, I don't know, maybe Fox News Channel did this. Computer modeling used a decade to go to predict how quickly global average temperatures would rise may have forecast too much warning, warming and warning, <laughs> but too much warming, a study has found. The Earth warmed more slowly than the model's forecast meaning the planet has a slightly better chance of meeting the goals set out in the Paris Climate Agreement, including limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Scientists said that previous models may have been, quote, on the hot side. Wow. Get out of town. Who could have possibly imagined this? The study, published, published in the journal Nature Geoscience, does not play down the threat which climate change has to the environment. Of course not, because then they'd be kicked out of the club. And maintains that major reductions in emissions must be attained. But the findings indicate the danger may not be as acute as was previously thought. Translation... Yeah, we sold you a bill of goods. This is all a bunch of BS, and now we're trying to backtrack because now we have no choice because the data is overwhelming. That's my translation. Back to the article. Miles Allen, professor of geosystem science at the University of Oxford, and one of the study's authors said, we haven't seen that rapid acceleration in warming after 2000 that we see in the models. We haven't seen that in the observations, unquote. By the way, this is always the case. I've, I've consistently said I'm more than willing to believe in global warming or massive climate change. Just make a prediction that's right. Just, just say, hey, this is what's going to happen 5, 10, 15 years from now, and have it be right. It never is. And here they are admitting that. 
Another of the paper's authors, Michael Grubb, a professor of international energy and climate change at the University at University College London, admitted his earlier forecasting models had overplayed how temperatures would rise. The key to all of this is extrapolation. And I've seen this in many different elements of life. Extrapolation is so dangerous. I do it myself. My wife and I do it all the time. This is, I would say most of our arguments become, a, become, be, be, become about because of false extrapolation. In other words, you take what you think is a grain of truth and you go, okay, if that's true, then this is going to be true and it's going to continue to be true. And then, oh my God, we got a big problem. It's the biggest weakness my wife and I have is that we both, our brains tend to extrapolate. And oftentimes, all you have to have is your data be just a little bit off or your assumptions be a little bit off and your conclusion is wrong. And there's no better example of that when it comes to the weather. And just, I mean, you don't even have to be a math whiz to understand that the slightest change in your calculations can, over a several-year period of time, result in a massive difference in results. And this is where bias plays such an incredibly important role. Because if you're a pro-global warming scientist and you're getting your money because of pro-global warming forces, and your paper or your study or whatever it is is going to be evaluated by other pro-global warming scientists, and the news media is going to give you far more attention, meaning far more credibility and far more money, if you are off the charts when it comes to alarmism and global warming, guess what you're going to do? And this doesn't even necessarily mean you're doing it on purpose. I think my gut tells me some of these people have done this on purpose and there's some evidence that they've done it on purpose. But I'm even willing to say this is just the nature of humanity. You're always going to fudge it in the direction that helps you. And it doesn't take much fudging. Because, by the way, you're probably thinking... You know, if, you, if you're someone who believes in global warming and you believe that climate change is the greatest threat facing humanity, you think you're doing this for the greater good. You think that what you're doing is saving the world. So if you give the numbers just a little bit of nudge, that's, eh, you know, it's the ends justify the means. And again, you might not even realize you're doing it, but it doesn't take very much at all to screw with the result. And, and what I found to be most hilarious about this study and the reporting on it is that this was portrayed as a vindication of the pro-global warming forces because they were trying to make the argument that, see, our efforts to combat climate change have been so effective that now it doesn't look like we're going to go over the one5 degrees Celsius increase. But that's bullshit. Because, one, we haven't done that much. Paris is basically a fraud. 
two, there hasn't been enough time for that impact to, to take place, even if there was an impact. And three, that's not what the study says. The study says the calculations were wrong. It doesn't say that somehow, you know what, we had calculated that there was going to be X amount of warming and there was less warming than that because we were able to reduce emissions this much. This is fantasy. This is all them maintaining the narrative. So we're giving you new details. They at least have enough credibility and their consciences are strong enough to where they feel like they needed to at least say, hey, by the way, (laughs) we're not all going to (laughs) die. You can continue acting like we're all going to die, but the stats don't back that up because strangely our predictions keep being wrong. So, but we're not going to change our narrative because this narrative is way too good for us. So we're not changing the narrative. We're just telling you, oh, by the way, and don't make too big of a deal of this, uh, we're not all going to die thanks to global warming climate change. All right. Um, I wrote another column for Mediate this week, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about Megyn Kelly's debut uh, on NBC's Today Show, which I found to be uh, bizarre and comical. And I'm someone who used to like Megyn Kelly, but I have never seen a media transformation as dramatic or as quick as this one. I mean, let's think about this, folks. In the summertime, Megyn Kelly was doing a Sunday night show on NBC where her first guest was Vladimir frickin' Putin. Now, she softballed him, but, I mean, that's as serious as you get. Vladimir Putin. And she was very proud about that. Then she did something stupid and she interviewed Alex Jones and acted like they were on a date while they were doing the interview and it was blew up in her face and the show ended up not even lasting the full 12 weeks that it was scheduled for. So it's clear that Megyn Kelly decided, oh dear, um, political stuff just doesn't do it in the ratings on a mainstream network because she's no longer on a cable news network where people at Fox, that's what they want. They want politics. People at NBC, apparently not so much. So now she's gone 180 degrees in the other direction. Her first major interview for the Today Show, which occurred before her own show debuted this week, wasn't Vladimir Putin. It wasn't even Donald Trump. It was the Kardashians. Her first interview on the show itself was the cast of Will and Grace, (laughs) which, of course, is an NBC show that she was promoting. And even that went disastrously because she was joking about the show having turned one of the guests gay. It was hypocritical on the part of the the cast to get upset about that because that's what the whole show is now. It's about how wonderful being gay is. But anyway, the, the point here is she has now condemned politics. So we're supposed to believe that the woman for 13 years was on Fox News Channel did debates, debate hosting, anchored election night coverage, was all political, becomes a massive celebrity because of her role in the 2016 election. Now all of a sudden, politics sucks. Doesn't politics suck, folks? No. 
What's happening is you're trying to appeal to a completely different demographic. You're trying to appeal to the stay-at-home mom who watches the third hour of the Today Show instead of the middle-aged guy who used to watch you as a conservative on Fox News Channel. So now there's like estrogen pouring out of the television screen, and it's just not working because it's not who she is. And so I, I basically predict in this thing, like a lot of people have, that something's got to give. I don't know what time period I would put on this because NBC is going to have to save face. I mean, they're going to they're going to do everything they can to get her through a year because after a year you can at least claim, well, you know, we did our best. It wasn't a total disaster. We gave it a good shot. But uh, I just don't see how it's going to work. And I haven't talked to anybody <laughs> who likes the show. And and uh, it's almost like taking an all-star NBA center and trying to make them into a Kentucky Derby winning jockey. It's just you, you. At best, you're, you're you know if you don't end up crashing, that horse is going to get tired real fast, and uh, that's what I anticipate happening with uh, Megyn Kelly. Interestingly, the only good interview she did this week was with uh, former O.J. Simpson uh, prosecutor Christopher Darden and the family of Ron Goldman, who O.J. Simpson uh, murdered. Kim and Fred Goldman. Uh, many of you know I used to be. Pretty darn close to Kim Goldman. We dated for quite a while, for, pretty seriously. She attended my wedding. I considered her one of my, to be one of my best friends, although I have not talked to her recently, and my efforts to get her on the show have not been successful. So I don't know what the hell is going on there. But it was a great interview with the three of them, and and it was the type of subject matter that Megyn Kelly is good at, except it doesn't fit. <laughs> doesn't fit with her new uplifting show. I mean, her show's supposed to be, we're going to make you cheer at the end of the day, like Oprah and Ellen or something. And yet <laughs> she's doing stories about double murderers getting away. And then an interview with Lyle Menendez, another double murderer who I guess some people are now trying to claim because NBC has a, a show devoted to it, uh, might've been justified in helping his brother kill his parents. Anyway, OJ got released from prison uh, this week uh, as you probably know, I'm somebody who has followed this story exceedingly close from the very, very beginning and even played a somewhat significant role in why O.J. Simpson was in prison in Nevada in the first place. Just Google John Ziegler, O.J. Simpson, uh, if you want to find out more about that. In hour number two, we uh, speak in depth about the O.J. Simpson situation with our guest, John Gibson, who covered the trial extensively uh, for... CNBC back in the day, and he has some very interesting things to say about uh, covering uh, the O.J. Simpson story. So check out hour number two of the podcast for that. You know, I am uh, not a well-known person, nowhere near a celebrity, but I will say that for among non-celebrities, it would be hard to imagine a human being who is more well-known in different circles for different things than me. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of celebrities who are known for different things. I'm a non-celebrity who is in this weird situation where when I meet somebody, there's a decent chance that they might have heard of me, but for many, many different things. I'll give you an example. Like within the intelligentsia, like the Northeast New York elite, I'm incredibly well known for the 23-page 
cover story in Atlantic Magazine that David Foster Wallace, the famous now dead via suicide author, did on me back in like 2005. I mean, it's almost, if you're a reader of The Atlantic, almost 100% you know about that story because it was so well-known. And, you know, frankly, it was a bunch of bullshit, and I think David Foster Wallace was a fraud, and that's why he killed himself. But a lot of people know me for that. There are other people who know me as the O.J. Simpson guy. Not as many as, frankly, should know me, because I I actually think that helping put O.J. Simpson in prison might have been my greatest accomplishment. But there's some people who know me as the O.J. Simpson guy. There's some people who still know me as the Tiger Woods is God guy, because that got written about all over the world. There are some people who still know me as the Sarah Palin Defender guy who made the movie Media Malpractice. There are a lot of people who know me as the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky guy. There are even some people who know me as the John Kerry Stuck in a Rock guy. Not that many anymore, but that was part of my identity for a while. There are also still some people who will always think of me as the guy who got fired in Louisville and sued by his ex-girlfriend and one guy. Frankly, my Louisville story is by far the best story of my life that I've never fully told publicly. I've always thought it would make a tremendous movie. If I, if I was going to make one movie about an element of my life, it would be my days in Louisville, Kentucky. You know, before this podcast is, is done with, uh, I don't know when we're going to end it, probably sometime fairly soon, I will promise to do an hour on my Louisville story. Because it's gold in so many different ways. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is there was a major news story in Louisville this week that was based in Louisville that I wrote about for media. Again, you can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com about the firing of Rick Patino, a guy who I never have had any affection for. I didn't know him hardly at all when I was there, although he was there at the same time I was as a TV and radio host in Louisville. I was glad to see him fired, even though I'm open to the idea that he theoretically might not have known about what was going on with this recent FBI investigation into the paying of players. But there's no question he should have known, and there's no question that he built a program where somebody was willing to do something that is utterly corrupt and against every fiber of what you're told and taught to be about in college athletics. That's at the bare bones minimum. Now, it's certainly possible he knew everything and signed off on it. But even if he didn't, he deserved to be fired because of the culture he created and because this is the third major scandal in less than a decade that he's gotten involved with. I wrote extensively about how the news media and their enabling of him, both on the local and national level, specifically by ESPN, really played a major role in what happened to Rick Patino. So check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Also, I, I referenced the, the Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky situation. For those who are following that story, make sure you go to framingpaterno.com because there was a major development this week that an irrational world would have made uh, significant national news, but nobody on the national level even understands why it's important. But they finally released the transcript of the so-called victim number two, Mike McQuery accuser, testifying well after Jerry Sandusky was convicted 
it's the epicenter of the whole case. It's the it's it's the story that if people understood even remotely a little bit of what really happened, it would set their hair on fire and the whole thing would be revisited. There would be a new trial. Joe Paterno's legacy would be restored. Uh, It's everything. The whole case flows from this one guy, Alan Myers, who I was prevented from describing fully, including his name on the Today Show back in 2013 in an interview with Matt Lauer, which is really part and parcel of how this whole fiasco was allowed to happen. But that transcript was finally released only because a Washington Post reporter has been asking questions about it, which should be the first sign that there's something wrong. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they, they only released the transcript of this testimony because a Washington Post reporter is poking around it tells you an awful lot. But uh, Ralph Cipriano, a Philadelphia, former Philadelphia Inquirer and L.A. Times reporter out of Philadelphia who runs a, a legal blog, has written about it and quoted me extensively about this development, and you should check that out if you care about the case at uh, Free Speech Broadcasting. And that's actually not a Free Speech Broadcasting. <laughs> Almost everything's at freespeechbroadcasting.com, but this is actually at framingpaterno.com. So uh, check that out uh, if, in fact, you get a chance to do so if you're interested in this case, which is the greatest uh, injustice not involving a direct murder I've ever heard of and which has almost no chance of being corrected because, largely because of the fact that our culture and our media are completely and totally broken. All right, that'll do it on a happy note uh, for this uh, week's edition of the podcast. Make sure you listen to hour number two in an interview with the former Fox News host, John Gibson. And as always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, uh, please share this via social media or word of mouth, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use a sheet. You know, do yourself a favor. Pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. (laughs) Well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.